Thank you very much. It's an honor to be with you today. And my talk is on Origen's interpretation of the scriptures. So Origen of Alexandria, who died either in 253 or 254, is arguably the most influential interpreter of the Bible after the writing of the New Testament. Henri de Lubac's History and Spirit, the Understanding of Scripture According to Origen, which was originally published in French in 1950, pioneered a recovery of understanding Origen's exegesis. And de Lubac's multi-volume medieval exegesis later grew out in part of his interest in Origen's influence on those who followed and those who opposed him. This lecture introduces Origen's interpretation of the scriptures and focuses on examples of the scriptural interpretation from his 29 Greek homilies on the Psalms discovered in 2012 in Munich. The lecture proceeds in five parts. Origins, life, works, and significance. That's part one. Part two, scholarship since Henri de Lubac for considering origin on scriptural interpretation. Three, major aspects of origin scriptural interpretation. Four, origin scriptural interpretation in the Greek homilies on the Psalms discovered in 2012 in Munich. And then five, conclusion with some uh, final thoughts before the questions and answers. Now, my thesis is that Origen offers a fascinating way of interpreting sacred scripture, a way always mindful of what is worthy of God for our holiness. And that deserves to be recovered, debated, and used today. Now, part one, Origen's life, works, and significance. The early fourth century Eusebius of Caesarea, who was an ardent originist, provides us with many details of Origen's life and instruction, which take up much of his Ecclesiastical Histories, Book 6. Origen came from an ardent Christian family in Alexandria. His father, Leonides, knew that the divine spirit dwelt within his son, who showed a remarkable gift in wanting to know the deep meaning of scripture. When a persecution broke out and his father was captured, his mother hid Origen's clothes so that he would not leave home and join his father. Instead, Origen wrote his imprisoned father this message, take care not to change your mind on our account. After his father's martyrdom, Origen in his 18th year presided over catechesis and attracted many disciples by his love of scripture and his philosophical life of asceticism. In his excessive zeal, Eusebius tells us, Origen castrated himself. On this account, according to Eusebius's telling, Origen's Bishop Demetrius of Alexandria, who had admired Origen's faith and bade him to be even more devoted to instruction, later turned against him. Origen had gone, on, had gone to live in Palestinian Caesarea, also known as Caesarea Maritima, and he was ordained with the approval of the bishops of Caesarea and Jerusalem, but not the approval of the bishop of his home diocese, Alexandria. Eusebius thus lays the blame of opposition to Origen, not on his teaching, but on an imprudent youthful act that took too literally the Savior's words about how some make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. After much preaching, writing commentaries, teaching students, and assisting bishops, Origen was tortured. He had written an exhortation to martyrdom and was prepared to practice what he preached. Everybody, so it seemed, knew that he was willing to die for the faith, and his captors did not want to make him a martyr. They tortured him without killing him. After the persecution lifted, Origen died either in 253 or 254. Now, Origen wrote many, many works. 
And what I've done here, uh, I've is giving you a list of the different kinds of works with some common examples of those works. All of the works in one way or another pertain to sacred scripture. At times, origin will be labeled in terms of Platonic traditional or Middle Platonism. But origin uh, was in various ways against Plato in terms of he was reacting against what he considered to be mere pagan wisdom and always wanted to refer to scripture. He wanted to use what was in non-Christian wisdom for the sake of scripture, and we'll see that. The first work is a massive work called the Hexapla, which is that Greek in terms of six columns, the origins edition of the Old Testament in six columns and at times more of the Hebrew, the Hebrew words written in Greek letters and Greek translations. So Origen was very concerned about what we would call philology, the various words, okay, and how the words are arranged, the meaning of the words. Second is this uh, very important work called Peri Archon in Greek. So it's usually translated in English as on first principles, Peri Archon, or in Latin, De Principiis. All of Origen's writings are in Greek, uh, but oftentimes uh, they're preserved in Latin. The uh, On First Principles is Origen's most systematic work in four books that begins with the rule of faith and considers the apostolic and ecclesiastical preaching regarding the theology about who God is and the economy, what God has done for us, and scripture as inspired, as well as how to read scripture. John Baer, who now teaches at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, has this work uh, translated. He did his own edition for it, and this is the uh, reader's edition in, um, in the Oxford University Press, Origin on First Principles. It's a very, very important work. And for our purpose of scriptural interpretation, especially it's book four, which deals with uh, how scripture is inspired and how to read it. Origen is also called an apologist, meaning that he wrote a defense, an apology for the Christian faith. His massive work is called Against Celsus. Celsus was a pagan in the second century who wrote uh, the true doctrine or true teaching against the Christian religion. So it's Origen's apology for the Christian faith to counter that second century pagan attack. Now, many of Origen's works on scriptures are commentaries, whereas others are homilies. And it's important to see the difference between a commentary and a homily in Origen's way of thinking. Commentaries are detailed literary studies of biblical books for those with significant time to study. So he wrote many commentaries and some we have still. So he wrote commentaries on the Song of Songs, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of John, the Letter to the Romans. So these are detailed literary exercises for people who have time to study. This is not to be confused with the homilies. Homilies are talks on the scriptures delivered to build up the church. It's meant for anybody present. So his homilies on Genesis, on Leviticus, on Jeremiah, on Ezekiel, and so forth. Origen also wrote treatises, which are topical um, ways of looking at themes. So on prayer, on Passover, and I mentioned that exhortation to martyrdom. He also has scolia. Uh, some of the scolia has been preserved, and these are marginal notes on, on scriptural verses. He has a dialogue with Heraclides, which is within the discussion of the Synod of Bishops. And he also has letters. 
These are messages that Origen wrote to others, such as the famous letter to Gregory. This Gregory may be Gregory the Wonder Worker, uh, who is sent to um, uh, Cappadocia. So here are some excerpts from the letter to Gregory. Origen writes, I am anxious that you should devote all the strength of your natural good parts to Christianity for your end. And in order to do this, I wish to ask you to extract from the philosophy of the Greeks what may serve as a course of study or preparation for Christianity, and from geometry and astronomy, what will serve to explain the scripture, in order that all the sons of the in order that all that the sons of the philosophers are wont to say about geometry and music, grammar and rhetoric and astronomy as fellow helpers to philosophy, we may say about philosophy itself in relation to Christianity. Sometimes in the tradition, uh, these disciplines are called handmaids or helpers, and uh, and so what. Origen does is he uses this example that already philosophy has these handmaids and that he wants to see that theology is the supreme science. And when we say theology, it means interpreting sacred scripture. He gives, as he usually does, an example from the Bible, a particular image that shows his point. He goes, perhaps something of this kind is shadowed forth in what is written in Exodus from the mouth of God that the children of Israel were commanded to ask from their neighbors and those who dwelt with them vessels of silver and gold and raiment in order that by spoiling the Egyptians, they might have material for the preparation of the things which pertain to the service of God. But from the things which the children of Israel took from the Egyptians, the vessels and the holy of holies were made, the ark with its lid and the cherubim, the mercy seat and the golden coffer, where was the manna, the angel's bread. These things were probably made from the best of the Egyptian gold. So when the Israelites were were uh, freed from Egypt, the Lord had them take, uh, in fact, the Egyptians gave them uh, things, such things as gold. Now, Origen continues, and I may tell you from my experience that not many take from Egypt only the useful and go away and use it for the service of God, while Outer the Edomian has many brethren. These are they who, from their Greek studies, produce heretical notions and set them up like the golden calf in Bethel, which signifies God's house. In these words also, there seems to be an indication that they have set up their own imaginations in the scriptures where the word of God dwells. He continues from there. But notice how that the gold from Egypt uh, can be used for different purposes. It can be used for wrong worship or it can be used for right worship. Okay, so that's the metaphor for taking the wisdom of the pagans. Uh, their wisdom is secular gold. So you can take it, but how do you want to use it? Do you want to use it for right worship or for wrong worship? Origen concludes, do you then, my son, diligently apply yourself to the reading of sacred scriptures? Apply yourself, I say. For we who read the things of God need much application, lest we should say or think anything too rashly about them. And applying yourself thus to the study of the things of God, with faithful prejudgment such as well-pleasing to God, knock at its locked door, and it will be opened to you by the porter of whom Jesus says, to him the porter opens. And applying yourself thus to the divine study, seek aright, and with unwavering trust in God, the meaning of the Holy Scriptures, which so many have missed. Be not satisfied with knocking and seeking, for prayer is of all things indispensable to the knowledge of the things of God. For to this the Savior exhorted and said, not only knock and it shall be opened to you, seek and you shall find, but also ask, and it shall be given to you. So Matthew 7, 7, uh, uh, ask, and you shall receive, seek, and you shall find, knock, 
and it shall be open to you, the Lord says in Matthew 7, 7. Origen is one of the most influential Christian thinkers in all of history. Many have benefited from his scriptural interpretation, and some have vigorously opposed him. St. Jerome is an example of both. He loved and translated Origen's writings into Latin, but later rejected Origen during one of the originist controversies. So in that late 4th and early 5th century originist controversy, uh, Jerome and Rufinus had both translated Origen's writings into Latin, but then Jerome rejected Origen, while Rufinus continued to express his love for Origen. Now, in another originist controversy in the 540s and 50s, during the reign of Emperor Justinian, who was the one who called for the Fifth Ecumenical Council, Constantinople II in 553, Origen was condemned. To give you an example of Origen's influence, Thomas Aquinas mentions Origen's name over a thousand times, making him the most attentive reader of Origen in the 13th century in the Latin West. Bonaventure, by the way, names him, I think, about 30 times. Thomas so much loved Origen that apparently he had some of Origen's commentary on John translated into Latin because nobody else quotes Origen's commentary on John in Latin like St. Thomas does until uh, after the Renaissance begins. So he probably had a personal translation because nobody else was using that. Now, Thomas numbers Origen among the holy doctors at times, and other times he speaks of Origen's heresies. Origen, who wanted to be a man of the church, has various errors regarding the Trinity, anthropology, and salvation. So this shows something, particularly in terms of how he wanted to be faithful, but he uh, he erred in ways that he didn't he didn't see. Okay, so later there were certain refinements. Okay, in terms of what the church was teaching, and uh, and he just didn't know that. You know, he is cited approvingly in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and is read in the Church's Office of Readings and the Liturgy of the Hours. When Pope Benedict XVI devoted two Wednesday audiences to Origen, he did not mention anything negative and called him a true master. Okay, so that he's a true master of seeing the connections between exegesis, that scriptural interpretation, and theology, because for Origen, it's the same thing. Okay, so theology is precisely interpreting the sacred scriptures. That's the end of part one. Part two, scholarship since Henri de Lubac for considering origin on scriptural interpretation. First, I just want to pause in terms of Henri de Lubac's history and spirit, the understanding of scripture according to origin. Uh, so it was translated in the, by Ignatius Press in 2007, but as I mentioned earlier, it was originally published in 1950, and this was Henri de Lubac's great defense of origin. This is uh, still near the beginning of the Ressourcement movement uh, and how de Lubac really wanted to go back to the sources of how scripture was being interpreted, especially by Greek fathers. Henri de Lubac said, origin was not the mad allegorist he is so often thought to be. The error is deep-rooted, meaning in what people think. It has so many authorities for it, it concurs, we must admit, with so many prejudices that even today we find good historians reviving it without a closer work, closer look. So allegory means literally to speak otherwise, to speak in another way. And it was a technique that the pagans had used to read their own scriptures, their own writings, 
namely, uh, say, Homer's uh, Iliad and Odyssey and various other works that are filled with the gods. Because they no longer believed in the gods, they thought that they could still keep this wonderful literature, but, use, but read it allegorically, meaning that it would have wisdom for how to live uh, today in our life. But they actually did not believe that, say, the, the gods did certain things that were said of them. So, uh, so allegory then was something that was already in practice. And at this time, people just thought that Origen was mimicking what the pagans were doing concerning their own sacred writings, and that he was not doing an authentically Christian project of interpreting sacred scripture. John Daniel Liu, who's a fellow Jesuit with Henri de Lubac, uh, wrote a book on Origen, where in terms of my summary, Daniel Liu wanted to show that allegory was different from typology. Origen, he likes typology. Typology is good. Typology is an intra-biblical way of seeing how the types or the examples of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the New Testament. Um, but uh, for Daniel Liu, allegory was bad. Okay, so typology is good. Allegory is bad. Daniel Liu thought that allegory was not authentically Christian, but a pagan Greek way of avoiding difficult things in the words. And that you can also find this in the Jewish scholar Philo of Alexandria who lived at the same time as St. Paul the Apostle. For Daniel Liu, we should follow Origen's use of typology, but not use uh, uh, allegory. Okay, so now you have someone who is a complete reaction to de Lubach's interpretation of Origen, and that is RPC Hansen. So Hansen has this work, Allegory and Event, and also, by the way, he has a, an important work on the fourth century in terms of what has been called the Arian controversy. So allegory and event, a study of the sources and significance of Origen's interpretation of scripture. Uh, it was originally published in 1959, so just uh, in the same decade as, as uh, Henri de Lubac's work. So listen to Hansen. Origen was generally speaking not seriously restrained by the Bible. He knew very little about the intellectual discipline demanded for the faithful interpretation of biblical thought. His presuppositions were very little altered by contact with the material in the Bible. Where the Bible did not obviously mean what he thought it ought to mean, or even where it obviously did not mean what he thought it ought to mean, he had only to turn the magic green of allegory and hey presto, the desired meaning appeared. So Hansen is ridiculing Origen. And uh, that Origen doesn't really know the Bible. He's, what he does with the Bible is not useful. He's not constrained by anything biblical. All he has to, to do is have a little magic and then, hey, uh, whatever he wants is there. Now, that interpretation is very influential, okay? So uh, de Lubach knew something of that and that's why he was writing his own defense. But after he wrote it, basically Hansen said, that's not good enough. It's not true what de Lubach said. So there continue to be important significant uh, important and significant interpretations of what Origen is doing in, script in scriptural interpretation. Jo Karen and Joe Twitchinson uh, wrote Hermeneutical Procedure and Theological Method in Origen's Exegesis, and this came out in the year 1985. Twitchinson attends to how Origen interprets scripture for his people, especially through preaching. Here is the method that she traced for his scriptural interpretation with preaching on the Psalms. So she writes, Four steps linked together in a natural movement. The first step giving the actual words of the prayer, meaning the prayer of the psalm. 
The second step, describing the attitude of the one praying. The third step, translating this attitude in the form of a first-person confession. And the fourth step, tying this confession back into the words of the psalm as the hearer's own, and as the opening step for the exegesis of the next verse. So she's looking at the very act uh, of Origen's method in interpreting the scriptures as he's preaching. Later, Torgerson continues, these four steps can be expressed as a sort of four questions which Origen puts to the text. What are the words of the psalmist? What attitude do they express? How can the penitent say these words? What attitude should the hearer have in order to say these words? And what should the hearer pray? Now, another important interpretation of origin on scripture is Peter Martin's Origin and Scripture, The Contours of the Exegetical Life from Oxford University Press. Uh, Professor Martin's teaches at St. Louis University in St. Louis, Missouri, United States. Martin's was considered, uh, wanted to look at scriptural interpretation in terms of the view of the interpreter, the one who interprets, okay? So not simply the act, but actually, what do you need in order to interpret scripture? Origen is a particularly suitable candidate for reassessing early Christians' scriptural interpretation, Martin says, because he embodied the exegetical life to such a remarkable extent. Few commentators and homeless in the early church cultivated scholarship of the script Christian scriptures, the law, prophets, gospels, and apostolic writings, as exuberantly as he did. By training, Origen was a philologist, a scholar of the Greek language and its literature. His main biographer, Eusebius, tells us that after his conversion to a more dedicated form of Christianity in his early days in Alexandria, Origen embarked upon an ambitious course of scriptural study that would occupy him for the rest of his life. Right, so, uh, so then to see how Martins wanted to see Origen as this great model of how to show a life uh, that is dedicated to scriptural interpretation. And then in his conclusion, Martin says, my principal aim in the study has been to offer a dynamic and composite portrait of the scriptural interpreter, interpreter as Origen understood this figure by focusing on the neglected interpreter, the center from which the whole exegetical enterprise emerged. I have contended that we position ourselves well for discerning Origen's sweeping and integrative vision of scriptural exegesis as a distinctive way of life. Okay, so this phrase way of life is especially uh, made popular by Pierre Ardo, Pierre Ardo's way of talking about philosophy and antiquity as a way of life. Okay, it's not just simply a classroom exercise, it's how we live. On the basis of a wide examination of his writings, I've demonstrated that the overarching context in which he situated biblical scholars, himself included, was the Christian drama of salvation. Scholarly competence was certainly an indelible feature of Origen's profile of the ideal scriptural scholar. Okay, that was in Martin's part one. If such a profile fails to capture the richness of his portrait of this figure. For Origen, ideal interpreters were more than scholars. Their profile also included a commitment to Christianity in which they gathered a range of loyalties, guidelines, dispositions, relationships, and doctrines that tangibly shaped how they practiced and thought about their biblical scholarship. As I demonstrated in a variety of ways, Origen's ideal interpreters also participated in this drama of salvation by examining it as it was conveyed on scripture's pages. Biblical exegesis afforded Christian philologists an occasion through which to express various facets of their existing Christian commitment. The dispositions, loyalties, and doctrines encouraged by their faith also colored their scriptural exegesis. 
Moreover, inquiry into scripture's saving message was one of the privileged means by which these interpreters received divine resources for their continued journey in the faith. In short, the exegetical project for Origen was a way of life, a way of salvation, culminating in the vision of God. Okay, so Peter Martins has this very important uh, work that shows that in order to understand Origen's scriptural interpretation, you need to think about him as an interpreter and how he wanted each of us to be a scriptural interpreter. My final example of a major review of Origen's exegesis is from Mark Randall James, Learning the Language of Scripture, Origen, Wisdom, and the Logic of Interpretation. And you can see how that has just appeared in this year of 2021 from Brill. Mark Randall James did his dissertation at the University of Virginia, and uh, this communicates the fruit of his work there. Learning the language of scripture argues that Origen's exegesis in the homilies and the Psalms becomes intelligible once we understand its proper aim. So what James did was that set of Greek homilies discovered in 2012 in the Psalms, he dedicated his work precisely on, on, on that, okay? So as an interpreter of scripture, Origen is not only interested in texts and their multiple meanings, rather he approaches the text of scripture as exemplifying a broader capacity for proper speech. The goal of interpretation is to acquire the capacity to speak according to the example of the scriptures, which I refer to as learning the language of scripture. The goal of Origen's exegesis is not so much understanding the meaning of particular texts as it is the acquisition of linguistic competence. Competence is a capacity for successful action in the world. As a capacity for action, a competence displays itself in the finite actions one actually performs. It includes as well all those actions that would have been possible for one to perform, which constitute an infinite set. Linguistic competence refers to one's capacity to use language. The linguistic competence underlying the scriptures would be that infinite capacity we're using language of which the scriptural texts are exemplary instances. The basic rule of Origen's exegesis is that the reader should reconstruct the linguistic competence by which the scriptures were produced and conform her own linguistic usage to this pattern. Okay, so notice how James uh, wants to see that Origen is giving a way for Christians to speak a linguistic competence so that it's not simply a matter of what an individual portion of scripture means, but a way of speaking rightly, okay, a new way of speaking that can be applied in many, many ways, limitless ways. James continues, this task has a definite logical character. It requires the exegete to reason from a finite set of actual utterances, the written text of scripture, to an infinite set of possible utterances, the language of scripture. This activity is expansive, a constant movement from the finite region of the actual to the vast space of the possible. It is by no means arbitrary, as we can see in a preliminary way by observing analogous cases in which we acquire competences. Okay, so James is really concerned about the allegation that origin is simply arbitrary. Remember RPC Hansen? Hey presto, all you have to do is just uh, have a little magic and you can have whatever you want. It's arbitrary. Well, uh, so James says, uh, one gains an infinite capacity to play an instrument, for example, through observing and practicing a finite set of exercises and songs. Something similar takes place in the acquisition of ordinary linguistic competence. A child learns to speak by observing the finite utterances of the speakers around her. Indeed, 
Perhaps the closest analogy to the logic of origins exegesis is that of the linguist, reconstructing the competence of ordinary speakers of a language by observing its use. In each of these cases, one takes for granted certain actual performances one regards as basically trustworthy, in which one tries to learn how to produce another possible, other possible performances of one's own. So this is, you can also talk about this as a habitus, a, a disposition that is instilled in the soul that allows people to have a limitless number of ways of acting. James continues, origins exegesis is different from the work of a linguist, however, in one crucial respect. The norms of ordinary usage reconstructed by the modern linguist are the conventional norms of the particular speaking communities. Origin, by contrast, is interested in a deeper sense of linguistic competence that exhibits rationality or wisdom. By wisdom, I refer to what we might call a global competence for action in the world, an art of living, according to ultimate standards of success. This definition is formal. What exactly these standards are is a matter that individuals and communities who pursue wisdom debate. Wisdom is vague as it pertains to content. Speech too is an action, and so the global competence of wisdom includes the capacity to speak rightly. It is in this sense that Origen aims to reconstruct the linguistic competence of scripture, not the author's merely conventional capacity to speak Hebrew or Greek, but the underlying capacity to speak wisely what he, that he takes the scriptures to exemplify. In learning the language of scripture, Origen seeks to acquire wisdom. Now, this is very important in James' work. Uh, fundamental, the fundamental dynamic in Origen's exegesis, then, is what I label the movement from lexis to logos. So lexis is that Greek that means the finite words of scripture to the logos to the infinite underlying capacity for wise speech they exhibit. James goes back to Stoic philosophy and shows how already outside of Christianity, there was a synthesis on going from the words, from the lexis uh, to the, uh, the fundamental dynamic of origins exegesis then is what I label the movement of lexis to logos, from the finite words of scripture to the infinite underlying capacity for wise speech they exhibit. Right, so for James, then, it's that movement that's found in Stoic philosophy, in Stoic philosophy, uh, going from the individual words of scripture to the very uh, meaning of scripture. So this Greek word logos, which means word, actually means many different things. Okay, so logos uh, is that same word that St. John uses at the beginning of his gospel, according to St. John. In the beginning was the logos. And the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Okay, so you can have Logos with that capital L, so to speak, um, in terms of that one who is the eternal son of the Father. Um, but you can also just simply use Logos in terms of an oration or a talk, or it could also mean a, a meaning. Okay, so, so going from individual words to the Logos, and Origen uses it multivalently. James continues, if one wants to call exegesis whose ultimate aim is wisdom philosophy, origin would not object, nor can we forget that the confidence and wisdom underlying the scriptures are, origin argues, nothing other than Jesus Christ, God's word and wisdom made flesh. For this reason, to become wise is nothing less than to conform word and deed to Christ, to acquire the divine rationality of the logos. Okay, so in terms of the Greek, uh, you can think about the word logic, comes from logos, okay? So the rationality, um, uh, the 
word rational in Greek is logikos. Okay, so according to the logos. Uh, so, so what um, James does is he shows that with origin, that the whole point of interpreting scripture is to get to the logos through the lexus, okay, from lexus to logos. And that logos is not only meaning, but that meaning is Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. So that's the end of part two of our lecture. Next one, part three, is uh, major aspects of origin scriptural interpretation. So this is my list to be helpful to, to have this, because by the way, sometimes people place emphasis simply on the senses of scripture um, without taking the broader way of interpreting into account. First, the sacred scriptures are inspired, different from all other literature for our salvation. This is extremely important that it's not just simply about reading how to read, but the scriptures themselves are inspired by the Holy Spirit and contain uh, and show forth then what we need to be saved. Second point, the word present, so that logos, the word present in scripture was made flesh. So John 1, 14, the word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word present in scripture was made flesh and leads us in the church back to God the Father. So notice then how you can't really interpret scripture uh, without um, belief in Jesus, the word made flesh, and be in his church, and then go back to God the Father. Because, third, because of our human condition as spirit, soul, and body, the scriptures have a bodily or literal sense, a soulish or moral sense, and a spiritual sense. And this is gr uh, graded. Okay, so the lowest is that bodily or literal sense. Um, and then there's the soul or the moral sense. And then finally, the spiritual sense. Okay, think of milk, vegetables, and strong meat for human nourishment at different stages. And there's a danger if nourishment is not properly given. Okay, so in terms of the bodily sense, milk. In terms of the moral sense, vegetables. And then in terms of the spiritual sense, strong meat. And then just think about the reality of that. You know, human life needs all three, but a baby cannot have strong meat. If you give a baby meat, what happens? The baby could choke, okay? The baby just simply cannot um, take it in. Well, there are things in scripture so powerful that they could harm um, those who are not ready to receive that. Okay, so these three different levels, uh, so three different kinds of senses, and it pertains to who we are because we are spirit, soul, and body. Now, at times, origin will also speak of a twofold sense, the letter and the spirit, and this is from the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Okay, so that's St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. For scriptural interpretation needs to be worthy of God. So what does God care about? Okay, what does God care about? For origin and for the great Christian tradition, God cares about you. He loves you. So everything in scripture, every detail in scripture is for you, is for your salvation, is for your good, is for your happiness, because that's what God cares about. And uh, so there are things that um, are in scripture uh, that are just um, 
If they're not interpreted about what God, what God most cares about, they could be ridiculous. An interpreter of scripture needs philological training and education in letters and literature, uh, but also above all, needs to be spiritually mature in Christ in order to understand that logos, the word, through the words of scripture and to communicate that to others, okay? So in terms of, you need to know what the words mean. So philology and also, by the way, different kinds of philosophy. Um, but ultimately, to be spiritually mature in Christ. Six, an interpreter of scripture needs to have a memory filled with scripture and to see how the word present scripture speaks today. Okay, so that word present scripture speaks through the one who speaks. So you see that the Logos is alive and uh, he has a message now for when you read scripture. Uh, seven, an interpreter of scripture must abide by the rule of faith, that is what Christians express in a creed, and must reject all interpretations that oppose the rule of faith. And there are various interpretations that oppose that rule, such as in terms of uh, pagan ways of thinking, Jewish things, ways of thinking that do not um, accept Jesus Christ as the, as the one who is the Messiah, and heretical interpretations. Okay. Then the eight, uh, uh, eighth way is an interpreter of scripture ought to educate others in scripture so that they may rise to be like their teacher. All right, so that, uh, that in terms of interpreting, you want those who listen to you to be like you because you want to be like Paul, who is like Christ. Okay, oftentimes Origen's way of uh, scriptural interpretation is very Pauline. So he'll use the words of Paul to be able to understand the, the totality of what scripture means and that we then enter into what Peter Martins calls the drama of salvation. If you don't like the theatrical image, um, you could just talk about salvation, okay? So th that way of life. Now, uh, our uh, fourth part is origin scriptural interpretation in these Greek homilies on the Psalms discovered in 2012 in Munich, Germany. This uh, came out in this book, okay? So it's that um, the the new Psalm homilies. So it's the critical edition from that codex uh, found in the State Library there in uh, Munich. And it's uh, the 29 homilies. And they've been translated into English uh, just a few months ago. Uh, it came out uh, from Catholic University of America Press by Joseph Trigg, homilies on the Psalms in the Fathers of the Church series. And uh, Joseph Trigg was very good to me. He gave me a copy of his translation even before it came out in the, in the series. And so I, I want to express my deep thanks for uh, Joseph Trigg's uh, advanced work uh, for me. Uh, one of the things I'm working on is a book called The Word in Our Flesh, A Return to Patristic Preaching. And I have a long introduction. And the first chapter is on origin on holiness. And these 29 homilies on the Psalms in Munich, Germany, uh, are filled with things concerning deification, right? So uh, as uh, was mentioned in my introduction, uh, uh, I'm particularly interested in deification, also known as divinization. And I'm a co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Deification. And I have another edited book on divinization in terms of the liturgy. One thing that I did was I, uh, I saw that Origen is particularly interested in this question that St. Paul asks in 2 Corinthians, where do you seek proof of Christ speaking in me? 
And what he does is he uses that several times, uh, most prominently in the last of the Psalm homilies. Okay, so the last of the Psalm homilies is on Psalm 81, uh, which has, it's, by the way, in terms of these numbers, this is the Septuagintal numbering, uh, because today most Bibles um, have a different numbering from the Septuagint or the Vulgate. And so in many Bibles, uh, what we call Psalm 81 and the Septuagint is Psalm 82. And uh, by the way, also this set of homilies is now the longest discovery uh, or longest known report of oral teaching by a Christian before the fourth century. Okay, so, uh, so this has doubled the number of original Greek homilies from origin because most of his preaching was only communicated in Latin by a translation, especially by Rufinus. And so it's just a really wonderful discovery. And just in terms of having you see something about scriptural interpretation, I wanted you to see how Origen uses this verse from Paul to interpret the Psalms in the Old Testament. Okay, so that in terms of, uh, of my work, uh, that, um, that you can look at this extensively in his preaching on Psalm 81, uh, but also how he uses it many times. So Origen cites this verse itself a question no less than six times in five homilies. Some may take the apostle's question to be indicating his unique status as the inspired vessel of election. Rather than being unique in this case, Paul is a model of conformity to Christ because he is in Christ and Christ is in him. We are, after all, bidden to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Origen preaches, become his imitator like Paul, and you will find that the Lord is always in you. For you also will say, it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So that's from St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. That living is made known in an eminent way through your own speech. For you also will say, okay, so Origen wants us to be able to speak like scripture, to be able to have the word within us, and that we too can be logical and to speak, to have the word speak through us. Those speaking the words of God have the word within them. On his reading of Origen's Greek homilies on the Psalms, Mark Randall James writes, the goal of interpretation is to acquire the capacity to speak according to the example of the scriptures, which I refer to as learning the language of scripture. Much later in his learned study, James writes, Origen himself frequently identifies the words of deified Christians with those of the Logos, often using for this purpose Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 13. Now we now explored that question in Origen's homilies outside of his homily on Psalm 81. In Origen's homily 2 on Psalm 15, he relates the account of Peter's preaching on this psalm from the Acts of the Apostles. Peter is said to have stood up with the eleven to preach. Origen takes this to mean that the apostles collectively bear witness that Jesus fulfills the psalm's words. I have seen the Lord before me through all because he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart has rejoiced and my tongue has exalted, and my flesh will still set up a tent in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul in hell, nor will you allow your devout one to see corruption. From the psalm. Clearly, the words are not the words of David, as the apostolic preaching in Acts makes evident, but they are the words of Christ. Okay, so Christ was speaking through the psalmist, and now Christ is speaking to uh, through Origen. Okay, Morgan, Christ speaks not only the psalm, he also, he also speaks through the preaching on the psalm. In order for us to preach rightly, we need Christ speaking in us, or do you seek proof of Christ speaking in me? Morgan quotes Paul. So wonderful is this act of Christ's assistance that Origen calls upon his people to pray for him. Okay, so remember the church is needed and, and the preacher has this mutuality with his people. 
Just as on other occasions, your prayers and requests for good things from God have helped us to make scripture clear, let them also come to our assistance now, that God may furnish a word to us who thirst and ask for enlightenment on matters that need clarity, and that we, through your prayers, even if at first we do not fully understand, may now, enlightened by the word, present what must be explained in the psalm with understanding. Okay, so Origen then wants his people to pray for him. Origen does not understand to mean that Christ is a ventriloquist, where he says that we are to hear both Jesus and Paul, where Paul says, be imitators of me, as I am also of Christ. Okay, this imitation does not rest in Christ's humanity, but even to the depths of his divinity. By God's grace, we are called to become perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect, and be holy, because I am holy, the Lord your God, and again, be perfect before the Lord your God. As a preacher, Origen's primary concern is his people's growth in the mystery of Christ. He says, for the Lord also dwells in you, if you wish, through everything. Become his imitator like Paul, and you will find that the Lord is always in you. For you will also say, it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Okay, so this is really very important in terms of origin on scripture, what scriptural interpretation means for him. And sometimes people get caught up into the difficulties or uh, technical matters. You know, the point is to have Christ live in us. We interpret scripture so that the word present in scripture is present in our lives. Origen takes Paul again as his example in homily 3 on Psalm 36 when he preaches on the verse, the sinner borrows and will not pay back, but a just person is merciful and would give. If taken literally, that does not make sense for Origen because many sinners borrow money and pay back with interest. Surely another meaning must be understood in terms of being worthy of God. Who is lending and who is borrowing? Origen takes the example of Paul lending and his listeners borrowing the approved silver in Paul's mouth. If the one borrowing is just, he will pay back with interest and say, you have given me one sum, see, I've made 10 sums. Origen uses the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 to show how the just return with interest what they have received from preaching while the, while the sinner squanders everything that he borrowed. Okay, so in terms of giving over that you receive and then you give back in interest, that you actually give back more. Origen then vividly turns to his people listening to him, all of you are borrowing now. These are the loans. These words are the silver. Origen recalls the psalm verse, the oracles of the Lord are pure, refined silver, proven, cleansed for earth seven times. If Origen teaches badly, his silver is unproven, but if he teaches well, his silver, which is in fact the Lord's, is proven. I am allowed to lend the Lord's silver, but I am not allowed to lend my own, he proclaims. Then he names three uh, second century heretics, Valentinus, Belisides, and Marcion, infamous heretics. Uh, they gave only what was from themselves, not from the Lord. But if you see someone speaking not what is his own, but what is God's, Origen says, and daring to say truly, or do you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, know that such a person lends not what belongs to him, but what is the Lord's. Origen humbly submits that he desires to give not from himself, but what he finds in the Gospels and the scripture of the Apostles, so that, as he says, I should not be a sinner so that I may not be punished, but as a just person, I can return with interest from my conduct the capital of the words I have heard. Okay, or another example, Origen begins homily one on Psalm 67 by focusing on his humble Savior's words, learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. He is persuaded that every word without Christ's presence in the speaker is empty and from earth, he asks his people to pray with him the psalmist words, God, come to my assistance. Lord, hasten to help, assist me. He wants a word to be given from God the Father so that he may give that word to his people who can then rejoice. 
I would therefore say, may they be delighted and gladdened on your behalf today through Christ speaking in me. He professes his own destitution and poverty, but he knows that God can gladden his people for his preaching. In this way will the Psalm's words be fulfilled, let God rise up and let his enemies be scattered. Let the just rejoice, let them be glad before God, let them be delighted for joy. The entire homily is taken up with an interpretation of that passage, and we can focus the forge on the command to tell God what to do. Let God rise up. Okay, so uh, so then Origen then continues on about how he can give uh, different ways of communicating with God, even telling God what to do, because God wants us to uh, tell him what to do. Um, and then another example, we are like instruments of God, Origen maintains in homily 2 on Psalm 80, who seeks a lyre musically and you know, that God seeks a lyre musically in tune, a harp well tuned, a psaltery on which the strings have been tightened as they need to be. Okay, so we then are the instruments of God and that God then uses us uh, as his instruments. Okay, so, and then uh, how people then either have God within them or a different spirit within him, within them. So just uh, skipping a little bit more, as we see in his use of Paul's question in 2 Corinthians 13, Origen repeatedly interprets the Psalms, these divinely inspired prayers, to pertain to himself and his people so that they may avoid sin and experience the holiness that is deification with the divine at work within their very being. Origen seeks to show how they can live out what the Apostle Paul himself experienced. It is a process of deification, which is complete only at the end of time. Every scriptural detail is fulfilled in Origen's preaching for the people's holiness, as the word is given for our salvation. That is what is worthy of God. So just in terms of conclusion, um, the final part, Origen offers a fascinating way of interpreting sacred scripture, a way always mindful of what is worthy of God for our holiness that deserves to be recovered, debated, and used today. So just in terms of, I'd like to emphasize those three things, recovered, that we actually have that resource small of going back and recovering what he really said, then debated that we that we talk with one another, well, what does this mean? And I think it's worthy to be used, okay? So that there are various aspects of this that are extremely important uh, for our growth in understanding uh, and for our living.